So, good evening, everybody. Good evening. How y'all doing? Um, I am going to take requests for what I'm talking about tonight. So I'm going to throw that out there right now. Whatever pops into your mind, even if it doesn't make sense, you don't even actually really want to hear about it, just speak it out. Ready, go. Okay, why did I leave the monastery? Why did I leave the monastery? One thing. Monkhood, yeah. So this is something about you? No, no. Oh, it's anything, whatever comes up into your mind. I, did you record the last session? Yes. So do you have the thought and awareness, that distinction that you make between the thought and awareness? Is that taste? Oh. Uh, did you do a brilliant job? Yeah. No, you spoke about that at the end of class. <laughs> I can talk about that again. I would love if, if, if there was a better default. Okay. I Difference between thought and awareness? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What else? Your experience with the Dalai Lama. Okay. Anything that pertains to your personal practice could be helpful <laughs> to, to you as well, probably. <laughs> sort of just stories about my life. Um, I think it might have been the first evening with you. Um, I thought you were very helpful in creating a visual for your analogies. Vision or the thought of thoughts coming in and hitting a, a Teflon and sliding off yeah. and using that. Pretty much, almost 24-7, I'll say. Beautiful. Very and good. Most of the time it works. Um, some evenings when I wake up, um, I'm falling back to sleep. The picture of a bigger pan. Sure. <laughs> Even if it's one of your first times here, feel free to yell something out if you're called to. No pressure. Yeah. Trees. Trees. Beautiful. Okay. Uh, I was just snowshoeing in the forest before I came here today. The trees are really beautiful. Okay. I could probably come back to trees in a different way. So... Um, okay, so a couple things about myself. So I was in the monastery for eight years uh, as a monk. And then I left. I left 2014. I left, traveled through India and Australia for the next two years, came back. The reason that I left the monastery is the same as the reason that I went into the monastery. It felt like it was the right thing to do. So for me, going into the monastery really felt like it was the next step that I had to make. It just felt like this is where I need to go right now to really learn, to really grow, to really go through whatever process this is. And then the same thing happened at the other end. I said, it's really time to leave. The next step of learning, the next step of growth is to disrobe and to be gone. But I didn't disrobe yet, so I first left and I traveled as a monk for a year. And then I disrobed the next year on my second time through India. Um, so it really was just with this feeling of mine um, that that's what I needed. And, you know, I, I've heard a lot of teachers talking about bringing the monastery into the streets, right? Like you don't really know how good your practice is until you're, you know, at 
Christmas dinner with your parents or something, you know, bringing all that stuff back into the normal everyday life. Um, I kind of think that that's, that's valid and I think it's kind of bullshit. It could go either way. I think ultimately everybody has their own path. Everybody has their own path. Everyone has the, their own way that they need to go, the experiences they have to make. So for some people staying in the monastery, going living in a cave up in the Himalayas, this is going to aid them in tremendous growth for their whole life. That's what they need. There's other people that need to go and work in a corporate office or something, and that, for whatever reason, is exactly what they need. Some people need to stay at home and do something there. There is no right or wrong way to do life or to do spirituality. It's really, what is your way? The only wrong way is the way that's not following your heart. It's the way that's not following what you actually feel that you need for yourself when you're true to yourself. So that's kind of what, what that was about for me. Um, and the Dalai Lama is somebody that I've met a few times. There's, um, who asked me that question? I forget. Um, there's actually, I, I made an interview on, so you saw that. So you already, so you already heard the story. Uh, okay, well, I'm not going to tell the same story to us. Um, but the Dalai Lama is, um, yeah, really just an amazing spiritual figure. So I've, I've seen him maybe about ten times, um, and I've met him maybe like five times. So I've had, you know, shook his hand, said hello, had a little talk, did this interview with the, the, um, the interview on YouTube. It talks about the time that I actually was able to interview him and really be around him for like an hour and really beautiful. Um, so he, you know, he wakes up at sunrise every morning. I think I once was at the movie theater and at the beginning of the movies sometimes they have like trivia questions to keep you entertained like before the movie begins. So one, it said, this famous person wakes up before sunrise every day and it was Britney Spears, Tiger Woods, and the Dalai Lama. And the person next to me was like, Tiger Woods. And I was like, yeah, right. You know? And then it, you know, the other two faded away and it was the Dalai Lama. And I was like, yeah, of course. And um, so he wakes up at, yeah, like 3 o'clock every morning or something, or 4 every morning. Um, and he does his own practice. And then he spends the rest of the day just serving and trying to help people and really being there, being a, a vessel. Like he makes that prayer every morning, you know, may I, may I be a bridge for those who need to cross. May I be a ship for those who need to, you know. Whatever it is that's needed, may I be that, kind of. It's this, I think it's from Shanti Deva, so it's Tibetan kind of, um, you know, ancestral kind of Tibetan teacher, so to say. Um, so his practice is really, you know, besides his own meditation practice and, you know, whatever else he's done himself in his trainings um, and the retreats that he's gone on, and that's, you know, one thing I have no idea. But from what I've seen, his daily life practice, it's really about how can I serve love and compassion? How can I really serve the world? How can I serve to spread human values? How can I spread justice for all people? How can I really benefit others as much as possible? Um, and he, he's done that. In a, and I think that together with his meditation practice just makes him super powerful. And maybe also, if if you believe in the whole Dalai Lama thing, he's the re, you know, every time he, he passes away, he reincarnates, and then they find the young child who was the Dalai Lama, and they do that again and again and again. So, you know, he's been at it for a while, I guess you could say, right? So he's 
this, if you think of like a string, like a string of beads, he has all these lives one after the other that he's again found and he practices again and again and again. So really strengthens this, this stream of consciousness that is kind of jumping from body to body. Um, and my experience with the Dalai Lama, um, there's an amazing power to him that he'll, there's this, always a huge excitement before he comes, a huge tension, it's this huge thing, and then he comes, and it's like this ecstatic thing that he comes, like when he comes out, it's like this thing explodes, but there's also this kind of a piercing silence with it that there's almost this space that kind of just forms around him that he's just suddenly, everyone's just super present, it's like the birds stop singing, like everything just stops, and he kind of just comes, and it's, you know, he kind of just sees everybody, And then he passes, and then it's like, right, and then it's like the wave, it's like the seas parted, you know, and then the, everything comes back. Um, you know, the first time I, I saw him talk, I was in um, Hamburg, Germany, and it was a big stadium, um, you know, 50,000 people. And there was one time that he was talking, and there was something, he was something very, very important and kind of touching, and there are these huge kind of tapestries hanging down um, in the stadium, and then the wind started blowing. And then these tapestries kind of started like billowing. These huge just walls of tapestries started billowing. And then he was talking, and there was something about the feeling in the air and the wind and him talking in the tapestries. And I was like, this is all, it was like all connected. Mm. It was as if that wind and that, it was like, hit, like it was all, it was somehow him. I don't know how to say it, but energy. it was the energy. It was like all one thing. And it was just this moment where I had this sense of this immense power that it was his being and just this power, the whole stadium, 50, and everyone felt like he was talking right to them afterwards, everybody. I was like, man, he really, he was talking, he knew exactly, you know, just for whatever reason, he would just say exact words that would just touch people in a certain way that everyone left feeling like that's what, you know, that's what I want, that's what I came here for. Um, and just the feeling that he was really just embodying the whole space, the whole space, the little space around us. Um, but on top of that, because of his presence and his, um, his sensitivity, and I think this deep wish of his, he also, my experience is that he's also developed something like a supernatural and a superhuman ability to kind of know what's going on. Um, for instance, when I was in India, um, I was good friends with, with this girl who was doing a, a yoga teacher training. So they were all, you know, this group of international people from all over the place, and they were doing a teacher training. And the day that I arrived in, Dalai Lama, in, uh, in Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama lives, um, was the day that, that the Dalai Lama decided he's going to start giving audiences again in Dharamsala to people that come. So I, like, went and signed my name up, and I was the first group of people that, after, I don't even know, 40 years were able to come to an audience. And he's like, you know, I travel around the world teaching and there's all these people coming here to see me and I don't talk to them, so I'm going to change that. So he started giving audiences. So I was at the very first audience. Um, and then there was the next one right after me. And because I went to the first one, you know, like, they already had my name, so I couldn't come to the next one. You could only come to, like, one, because there's so many people. But this girl, my friend, she and her yoga teacher training class, they all went to see him. And afterwards, I asked her how it was. And she said, well, it's interesting because there's this girl who was in the program with them. And the day before, a couple days before, 
through something had happened and she 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 hurt her leg she like twisted her ankle or something really like she was in a lot of pain something really bad happened and she also couldn't you know continue with the yoga teacher training in the full capacity she wanted to so she had kind of like a lot of emotional stuff going on about that and you know so they all go to see the Dalai Lama so the way that it's set up it's the Dalai Lama's temple and there's this courtyard and they kind of just fill it with people so there's maybe even up to like a thousand or five hundred people kind of packed into this courtyard in groups and they separate you by countries and things like this. So, so this girl, so all and their yoga teacher training, they all stayed together. So they were like this one group, and some of them were sitting on the floor, some of them were standing. Um, and the Dalai Lama comes out, and he, you know, sees all these people, and then he goes group to group and he says hi and he takes his picture. So then everyone has their picture with like a group in the Dalai Lama, right? So he goes over to their group. And he gets the picture taken. And he turns to walk away. And then, you know, a group of them are sitting on the floor, just kind of sitting. Like, they're all just kind of sitting like this. And he turns to walk away, and he just stops. And he turns back, and he walks straight up to the girl who hurt her leg. And he put his hands on her leg. And he said, are you okay? Are you okay? Is it okay? And she, you know, just starts crying. And she, you know, and he's like, you know, there, there. You know, it's okay. It's okay. You know, and then he's like, it'll be, it'll be okay. And he gets up, and he turns around, you know that he just knew. He just somehow knew he could sense. And it's not like she had her leg up in like a cast or something, you know. They were just sitting, everyone was just sitting on the floor. But just a beeline right for her, put his hands right on her leg, right on the spot. And he knew what was going on. And I've heard other stories about him, same thing, you know, just going through a, a procession of people and suddenly just turning and going right to some woman and hugging her and saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And she starts crying and it turns out that she had just lost her husband or something like this. And, that these, you know, these stories happen a lot, actually. That, and I think that's why a lot of people, they have a real visceral connection to the Dalai Lama because they feel, they really feel this connection. They feel this compassion. And it penetrates. It's piercing. It's like once you've seen the Dalai Lama, it's like something you just feel like, it, I don't know, something changes. You just feel different. It's really piercing. So, um, yeah, just really an amazing amazing figure, amazing person. Try to see him. He comes to Boston every now and then. Yeah. Um, okay. And the difference between a thought and a... It's all kind of tied into each other, so it's fine. So I just got out of retreat, so I did a three-day retreat. Um, I made a little podcast about it and talked about it and put it on iTunes um, and I had this really interesting thought one day that I wrote down that I didn't say to anybody because I felt like I would be misunderstood but I'm going to say it to you guys and uh, take it for what you will especially if you are religious if you grew up following like Catholicism or Christianity or maybe even Judaism um, this could strike a nerve with you but maybe it'll be brilliant. I think it's brilliant. So, anyway. <laughs> so I was sitting in meditation. And this, this great spaciousness opened up. Right? And I was aware of, right, just kind of the, the, the passing of thoughts and feelings and all these things. But really just residing in the spaciousness. And there was, you know, this, this ebb and flow of different feelings and thoughts and impressions flowing around and then it started to shift that 
my identification, my self-identification, shifted from being identified with this character called Seth, this one who talks to you and had all these experiences and all these thoughts and all these, you know, this way of being, this habitual way of being, this character, I call this a character, this character of Seth. It shifted that what I felt more closely identified with was actually the space, the space that was surrounding and embracing that character, the spaciousness that's aware of that character. Like when I say, um, right, I feel sad, right? So there's the sadness, which is like the thought or the feeling, but who's the I that's feeling sad? Who's, who's I? Who am I? When I say I feel sad, who is the I? Who's, who's back there? Who's in there? What is that? Right? In Buddhism, they'd actually say there is nothing in there. That's the whole point. But another way to say this is that there's an awareness. There's, a, there's a, an awareness of space, a spatial awareness. Right? There's awareness that's there. That awareness isn't me. It's not me or not. It's just awareness. It's just a part. It's like a car isn't the wheel, right? But the wheels are necessary for that car to move, right? So there's awareness. It's just this, it's a, it's a component of this being called Seth. So the attention shifted to this awareness. And the being of Seth kind of started, it was like thinking and things like this, but then it started calming down all by itself because it wasn't getting any more food. It wasn't getting any more attention. It started calming down. <clears throat> and I had this really interesting thought. Okay, so here it is. Get ready. So our whole lives, we identify with the wrong thing. Our whole lives, you think you are your thoughts, you think you are your feelings, you think you are your body, you think you are your wants, your fears, your wishes, your hopes, your frustration, your insecurity. You think all that stuff is you. You think that's you. What that's like, it's like putting a hand in front of your face and saying that the world is a hand. Because it's all that you see, because you're in it. My teacher, Achim Brahm, he said, uh, I don't know if I told this in the class, but he said it's like a tadpole in water. If you say to a tadpole, like about dry land, it doesn't understand. And then you say, well, it's the thing that's not water, and the tadpole doesn't know what water is either, because it's all he's ever been in. It's only when the tadpole grows legs and he climbs out onto the land, he realizes, oh, that's water. That's the thing I've been in the whole time. Only when you get into those deeper meditations and you start to, you, you, come, you drop into a space that's, that's greater and vaster than this individual personality, this character. And you're like, oh, that's what ego is. That's what self means. And because there's something outside of that, greater than that. And then my possibly controversial religious thought was if you're talking from a Judeo-Christian perspective that if you want to talk about God and Satan or God and the devil you are the devil you are Satan you are you being that sense of self the thoughts everything that you think is you is actually the thing that's blocking you from seeing the light from seeing this greater presence, this oneness. What else is God except a, a spacious universal knowing? Right? That's a pretty good definition of God, I guess. 
Yeah, I'm not religious at all, but I was just like, wow, like how interesting that I'm now in touch with this big spacious knowing feeling and the thing that was keeping me in the way was this thing pretending to be me that's not me. And I said, how, how divinely perfect is that? that? That the thing that I thought I was the whole time is the thing that's actually keeping me from seeing who I really am. And I thought in the Judeo-Christian perspective, then I would call that sense of self the devil because that's the thing that's keeping you from experiencing God, which is that space of awareness, that, that thing that's greater, that's open, that's, that's just kind of connected to everything. That's not really you or not. It's just, it's part of all of this that we can be a conduit for, we can connect to, we can really fully be present. Like, I guess that's even what Jesus was talking about in a way. It's like, you can become God. You can, you know, you can, you can connect to God that deeply that that becomes you, right? And that's kind of originally what it seemed like he was trying to tell people to do. Like, that's why he tried to shatter the whole structure of what the Jews were building at the time of like, because he felt that religion was becoming very exclusive, that only if you were in this certain kind of place, you could practice, you know, worshiping God. But if you were an outcast, you had no access to God anymore. And Jesus was kind of like, no, everybody can access God. It's here. You go in and you find God and you connect to God. That's it. It's not, you don't have to go to a church. God is in you. You have to go to a temple. God is, you're connected to God already. Right? So that whole thing about making God accessible to everybody was actually Jesus's big message, was that God is accessible to everybody. And in a way, this is what the Buddha was saying too, not about God, but saying enlightenment is accessible to everybody. So if you really look at all the great religious teachers before, you know, the religious institutions kind of entrapped them and said, no, this is what they were really saying, you know. When you actually really listen to what the, all of the, the religious teachers of the world are saying, all of them say, you, you have the potential. It's within you. You can do it. You, can, you, can, you have the ability to transform and to become a holy being because it's a part of you. It's within you. But you have to also see what's not you. You have to get out of your way and see what's not you. And this is, again, it's really hard to talk about if people have never experienced this, because if I say, like, if I say, like, you're, you know, people are going to go home and be like, Seth told me I'm the devil. Like, what? Like, you know? like, it doesn't make sense. Like, if you've only ever experienced yourself, you don't get what I mean when I say this thing outside of you. It doesn't make sense. You're like, what, like, what, do you, what is not me? Like, what? Huh? And I, and I understand that. And if you had said this to me a couple years back, I'd also say that sounds very fascinating, but what the hell are you talking about? Um... But I can now say from experience that that's kind of like what it's like, is that, that um, you know, there's a thought, but who, who, who experiences that thought? What is it that's experiencing that thought? There's a feeling. What's experiencing that feeling? There's a body. What's experiencing that body? You know, so there's a mind, an awareness that is, that is within this physical form if not even if you talk about auras and stuff, if not even around this form, or even if you get bigger than that, you know, there, we're, we're very multi-dimensional beings. We often reside in this third-dimensional part of the world through our, using our senses and this, but there's multi-dimensions to us that can be experienced. If you start joining these shamanic courses that are being offered, you'll probably start to see that, that there's more going on because that's kind of what it's about. That's why shamanism it's it's in every single culture around the world if you go back to the original peoples of this planet they all already were practicing similar things with different instruments maybe 
to get there with different practices, but all getting to that same place of realizing that there's this deeper connectivity, that there's all these different dimensions that, we're, that we have access to, that we're actually functioning on simultaneously, but we're just not aware of it because our ability has atrophied over the years. The more that we've become civilized, actually, is the more that we've become entrenched in this materiality. And if you look at the flow of the world, you see that there's an emphasis on materialism. People like having more stuff, more things. And that's caused the world to break and the world is dying. And that's actually why there's a big upswing in spirituality is because there's a collective waking up process that says, oh, materiality leads to destruction. That can't be the way forward. There has to be something more than just this stuff, right? And that's why if you look around and you walk down the street, if you talk to any single person walking down the street and you say, do you know what yoga is? They'd say yes. If you did that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, they, they, you wouldn't be like that, right? That this thing called yoga, it's every, everyone knows about it. Whole foods, right? Things like this that, that exist all over the place now because people are starting to realize, okay, we need something else. We need to be in touch with something deeper. So we are multidimensional beings. Yeah, there's a lot going on. And even if, I, when I was in the monastery, I reflected deeply on this. If you really pick your experience apart right now, feel, feel the ground, feel your body sitting here, yeah? And look at me, and listen to me, right? So you're experiencing me. You're feeling your body, you're looking, listening. Your vision, your sight, is happening on one dimension the sound you're hearing is happening on another dimension, and the physical feeling of your body is happening in another place. The feeling of my leg on the ground isn't happening here. It's happening in another spatial place, but my mind overlays them on top of each other, so it makes one experience. But if you really focus right now, each one of you, if you really focus on your experience, that feeling of your foot, it's not this thing down here, it's it's a feeling that's floating in space, but because you see your foot and you have a bodily sense, you create a spatial relationship. It's like when you throw a ball at a baby, they can't catch it. But as they've trained that, suddenly they realize how to match vision with, with the body, with feeling. That we start to, it's learned, that you start to learn to combine your senses to create one experience that you can then function on this plane. But if that was already all connected, a baby would be able to jump up and start functioning. It would have great hand-eye coordination because the sense of touch and the sense of sight would be the same thing. So it could, a baby could already reach down and pick up something, but it can't. Because your body, your, the feeling of your body exists in a different place than your, than your sight which is also why you can close your eyes and you still feel the shape of your body. Because that feeling exists in space over here and sight exists in space and hearing over here, but our brain brings it all together into this one thing we call our experience. I know this might be like really deep or confusing, I don't know, but this was actually like when I really got down when I was in the monastery on retreat, I started breaking down the senses of sight, of hearing, of body, and I started really seeing that, that we connect them and call this one thing experience, but they're actually separate. The senses are separate, but we overlay them. And that's how we function in the world. Does this make sense to you, what I'm saying? Like, whether or not you're experiencing it, but yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So ultimately, ultimately, I think when you start breaking all that stuff down, you get more in touch with the state of being. You start dropping this inner identifier that calls itself you, that has this big storyboard of who I am, what I've been through, what I've done, blah, 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 blah. And you really start being present to kind of what is. You start just being present within your senses. You know, you, you arrive at a state of being. And again, we are nature. We come from nature. We follow natural principles. So if you go into nature, you look at a tree, you look at something outside, those things are in a state of being. Nature is just being. We are also being. We are a state of nature. We arise and we fall and we're connected all the time to everything around us intrinsically. There's nothing out there that's not in here. I'm speaking. I'm breathing out. You guys are breathing in. You're breathing in me. My particles are entering your body. It's kind of gross, but it's happening both ways too. <laughs> that you're breathing out and I'm breathing you in. So even on a, on a very practical, physical level, through our breath, we are all connected materially through the air molecule exchange. Yeah? Not to mention sounds. Not to mention my vibrations hitting you and going things. Not to mention on the conceptual level. My words are entering into your brain. Yeah? I'm literally programming your brain because you're listening to me. I'm telling you things. The ideas that I'm saying are going into your mind and now they're becoming you. Now if I ask you what do you believe and you say I believe that we're a bunch of senses, that's my program now in your brain. So your mind is actually me. But that didn't come from me, that came from the Buddha, that came from my teachers. So even on a conceptual level, even that we're using the English language, which is also a program that's been passed down to capture words and understandings in a certain way. Yeah, that even everything that I'm saying and even your whole way of understanding is conditioned upon a language structure that was created by people over the years. I think the dictionary, they just had a, a thousand new words put in. I just heard on NPR, a thousand new words. Things like blogging and weak sauce is one. So all these like new words have become, right? So now there's all these new words that are now part of our language that you will hear and now they become a part of your mind too. So even on the mental level, which a lot of us hold so dear, if you look around, go on Facebook, everyone's fighting their ideas, they're fighting their opinions. But I just gave you your ideas and opinions. So even these opinions and ideas that you're fighting for, they came from something else, usually, on some level. Even if you thought of something yourself, the constituent parts that you came to that thought still came from other places. For instance, if you use the English language to construct your ideas, you're using a structure from somebody else. So you're still being influenced by others. So we are all completely conditioned on every level. On every level, we are a part of everything else around us. All of nature, all people, energies, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And this is kind of like what the Buddha was trying to get to in his, the way he was speaking about things. I think a lot of other religions speak about this too and a lot of other teachings. The Buddha, his main thing is he said there's no you. And he means that they, they speak about emptiness in Buddhism. Emptiness doesn't mean nothing. Emptiness means that there's not a you that exists outside of all this other stuff. He's saying that you are a process that's connected to all, we are this interwoven web of stuff that we're all connected, we're all flowing through each other and nature is flowing through us. 
and we'll eventually get old and we'll die and that's it. And that's kind of this wave that we go through, you know. And that was that. But through his, you know, awakening and what he saw, he also saw the whole rebirth thing, that then the consciousness keeps going and it goes into another thing, it goes into another thing. And that there's this bigger structure that a lot of us don't see. There is a lot of amazing research out there, by the way, right now about past lives, about children who remember their past lives. When I was in the monastery in Australia, there was a Vietnamese boy, and he could chant huge sections of Sanskrit texts, Buddhist texts. He was like four years old or something, and he just started chanting. And these aren't like the teachings of the Buddha. These, this is from the Abhidhamma. These are, these are the, the um, this is like the science of the mind. Like, a particle called a chitta arises in the mind with four particles called a chetasika. And those together make something called contact, which allows, like, and he was reciting huge blocks of this text, this four-year-old kid from nowhere. And they recorded it and they played it to these teachers. And they're like, this is like word for word the Abhidhamma. But the accent he was chanting it in is like an archaic, like not used anymore accent in Sanskrit, like that nobody even uses anymore. Yeah, and this is like, one of million, like so many, there's so many books and, and studies and things that are happening of going, kids that remember their past lives, they remember this, 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 this. The Dalai Lama, right, he goes, there's a movie Kundun about him, right? Martin Scorsese made it. He goes to the temple. They bring this little boy to the temple. He's like, oh, that's where my false teeth were kept. Oh, that's where that thing is. Oh, this is mine. This is mine. This is mine. You know, they, they carry the memories. There's a lot of really good evidence, actually, that, that there is something that carries on. And I also want to say that Christianity, I'm sorry to say, early Christianity believed in reincarnation. And only there was a shift that happened. A pope was actually imprisoned by the Romans. Because he was talking about reincarnation, they said, no, you can't do that anymore. That it was, there was a shift that happened, but early Christianity did talk about reincarnation. It wasn't something separate. So even our religions that think that, you know, no, it's only this, and you go to heaven forever or whatever, these are just ideas that we're given. None of us really know. And I think that's a big part. None of us really know, except when you talk to people that are like, oh, well, actually, I know I was, you know, this World War II pilot in my last life, and here's all the information, you know, that there are actually people who do know. There's a lot of people that do come back, and they talk to us. They're like, no, I literally was in my last life that guy, and here's all the information. You know, and these are children that are saying this. They have no way of, no way. And these are studies that go back to, you know, before the age of the internet also. So it's not like something that's just new. This has been going on forever. So ultimately, everything is just in flux. It's moving, it's changing. And on the deepest levels, on the really deepest levels, when we talk about creating peace, when we talk about freedom, liberation, enlightenment, all these words, it's really about experiencing that. The more you make experience of that, like the nonstick pan of the mind, right, thoughts come up, and then they just slide off, thoughts come up, they just slide off. You start to realize, those thoughts are not me. I don't need to care, I don't need to react to every thought. That has nothing to do with me. Try that with feelings. Feelings start to come, oh wait, the body, there's pain in the body, yeah, but is that body me? Things, you start to get to this place, and you're like, what have I been worrying about? What, what is the big deal? What's actually happening, right? Because we're holding on so tight, and Jack Cornfield, I think I might have said this before, but you know, he said that the spiritual term for that is when you're holding on really tight, you get what's called rope burn. 
right? Because we're holding on so tight to life, but life is changing, so it just hurts. It's yanked out of our hands again and again and again. And the tighter we hold, the more we're going to suffer. And that's just a spiritual principle. It's a rule. The more you hold on. I talked to this old man in India, and I said, it must get, it's really, gets hot here in the summer, huh? And he's like, oh, yes, very hot. And I said, it must be really hard. And he said, when the inside is hard, the outside is hard. When the inside is soft, the outside is soft. And it was really this beautiful teaching from this old man. And it was just like, yeah, like exactly. It's not, it's not the fact that it's hot in India, but it's how do you deal with that heat? Do you just relax and accept it and be like, yeah, now it's hot, it'll be cold later? Or are you sitting and, oh, God, it's terrible, and you have your fan, and you, go, and you need the air conditioning? At the monastery in Australia, they have the hot seasons. They had a, a bunny rabbit that was there. And in the summer, it gets really hot, and it would, it would hop into one of the bathrooms. The bathrooms were open, and it would sit in front of the little fan in the bathroom. And just the whole day, the bunny would just sit in front of the fan, and the bathroom was just blowing cool air, right? It was like the only like, respite from the heat was like this little bunny just like, sitting in front of the fan, like, blowing like, cool air on it, right? Said, <laughs> yeah, and then, that, and then its life is contained to a lavatory because it needs you know, it wants to be cool. So yeah, so ultimately what we're doing here in the meditation, and um, you know, I feel like I've I've talked through like a big chunk of this class, but yeah, I guess for good reason. But um, but ultimately what we're doing through our practice is we're really we're striking into the heart of that. We're striking into the heart of that space where you start to identify, maybe I'll say it backwards, that you stop identifying, yeah? that you start peeling back the layers, that you start realizing that these things are coming and going and they're not, I don't have to react to everything, that's, it doesn't matter, it's okay. And you start to get this new sense of peace that you can really just relax. Right? So this man in my first class in Andover after the class, I said, how was the, you know, the six-week courses? And he said, yeah. Right? I used to drive my truck, and when people would upset me, I would swerve, and I'd, some, I'd run them off the road. You know, and after your class, I don't do that anymore. And I said, oh, yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's, a, that's pretty big. That's a good development. Right? Stopped being homicidal. It's good. Right? But he kind of realized someone does something, and he's like, that, it, it, it has nothing to do with me. Why? Me getting mad, I think they say anger, it's like you're, you're, you're holding a hot coal and you're expecting the other person to get burned. That's like the saying. When you're angry at somebody, it's like you're burning inside and you're somehow thinking that that's hurting the other person. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And it all comes back to just not knowing, not seeing clearly. So this is, again, what the Buddha talks about. He said it's ignorance, the whole base of everything. He's like, if you don't see it clearly, if you think that that's you... You're going to be trapped in that. And if there's a pain in your leg, I, then, then I'm in pain, right? Again, there's a difference between saying, I am angry or I feel angry or anger has arisen in me, right? Or there is anger. I don't know. You get kind of very abstract. But even just in the language, right, how much we're identifying with that thing and how much we're really identifying with more of that timeless space around it. I think Jack Kornfield said, every time he looks in the mirror, he sees that his body's getting older, but he doesn't feel any older. Do you guys know that? Like, you look in the mirror, and you see that the body's aging, but you don't feel older. It's like there's something in you that's not... It's not like you're getting older, but this physical form is, like, 
decaying or whatever, like, you know, a little bit, getting like a belly or like wearing, you know, like there's something, like the physical form is kind of, but you don't, but you, like you, there's something that you don't feel old, there's, you know, whatever that is, the, that, and that's kind of like when I talk about the awareness, right? And I don't want to say that the awareness is you because that's then creating a new thing to hold on to. That's like a new you, right? So I'm going to stay from the Buddhist perspective and say that none of that stuff is you, right? But it's just about peeling back the layers and, and really just seeing that it's, this, it's a process. You, we, we are a process, right? We are a process. Our lives are a process. Our beings are a process. Our bodies are a process. Our minds are a process. Processes move and change. And... If there's anything that I would say to identify with, to call you, it would be the change. I think that was the last talk I gave on impermanence. In this, this is a similar thing. That you identify with the change, because that's the closest thing to being the truth of the matter, is that you are this change. Yeah. So... Uh, I've gone and talked to myself 41 minutes. So I think we'll use the rest of the class just for practice, yeah? Just to take this impulse and to, uh, to really try to embody it, just to let it resonate. Anytime I talk, anytime you hear a spiritual talk, don't try to remember anything. Just let it come and let it go. And whatever sticks will stick. Whatever hit you has hit you. And whatever doesn't, Maybe it goes away, but I'll tell you, I promise you, I remember so much stuff that I didn't know that I remembered. When I give these talks, if you ask me, if you see me walking down the street and say, like, what do you, I, I don't know, any, I don't remember anything. I don't really know anything. But when I start talking, suddenly it's like, like my brain starts lighting up all these regions. I'm like, oh yeah, and this one said this, and this said this, and I had this experience, and it's like this whole network comes out of nowhere and just arises. And we all, it's for all of you. So you all have stored everything that I've said. And I'm recording it anyway. But, but you've also, it, it all has a place in there. So really, let that also be the next thing that you let go of. And just really feel whatever you feel. If there's one part that struck a chord in you and really feels good, then that's already there. You don't, there's nothing to do. Right? So don't try to hold on to teachings either. Right? It's all just the same thing. Um, so... There's two ways that we can do the class. Now it's already 8 o'clock. So we could then either do a walking meditation for 10 minutes into the sitting for 20 minutes, or we could do a half-hour sit. I see some of you cringing. Well, I don't want people to be, like, in pain and, like, ah. Okay. And you guys say walk because you just don't want to sit that much. I, I think the walk is... Um, you like the walk? Yeah. I like the walking, too. Um, I'll get sit. I just... Okay. I need I have another idea. Okay. <laughs> Why don't we do, like, 10-something-minute walking? And then... We'll sit. That's a <laughs> and then if people want to keep sitting after I ring the bell, you can maybe keep sitting. How's that one? Okay, so we'll do 10-minute walking and then we'll sit.
everybody's skin. <laughs>